Welcome to the latest episode of the Energy Intelligence Podcast. We're recording this one from beautiful downtown Houston. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a member of the corporate team with Energy Intelligence, and I'm here with Noah Brenner, our senior corporate reporter. Hey, Noah. Hey, Luke. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. We are beginning 2019, and it's about the time of the year when people like us like to make some predictions about how the next 12 months or so might play out in the oil industry, specifically about how we think companies will behave and what that means for oil production and production growth. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that 2018 was not a pleasant year for the oil industry. I think you see that reflected in uh, the recent stock prices, uh, many of which are at or near um, multi-year lows. And yet 2018 was supposed to be this year where most of the industry really started kind of hitting its stride after this long downturn of the middle of the decade. Um, so Noah, what, what do you think the prognosticators got wrong in 2018? Well, I mean, I guess you could say maybe everything and nothing. Some of the prognostication, you know, it was there was such a varied field of of predictions for the year that uh, I'm sure some people were were right at least half the time, and maybe half the people were wrong all the time. But uh, no, I mean, I, I think definitely one of the things that that perhaps most upended markets was U.S. production growth. Uh, it came on uh, incredibly strong from about August onward. Um, the August numbers that came out uh, from the U.S. government. Uh, later in the fall, definitely were a shock to markets. They were followed with strong September numbers. And this was really in an environment and, and sort of in a context that that we were, our understanding, a lot of the understanding and the messaging around, um, you know, the Permian Basin, the most important oil production area for the U.S., was that this was an area that was constrained. I think we probably wrote the word constrained, uh, you know, hundreds of times, Um and really, a lot of people thought that that oil producers wouldn't be able to move enough oil out of the basin in in an economic way uh, to be able to grow production um, a lot year on year. And so we saw a lot of predictions for strong production growth in the first half of 2018 based on a strong end to 2017. Um, and then for that growth to sort of tail off through the second half of the year. And instead, uh, perhaps maybe we saw what even could be termed as underwhelming growth in the first part of the year. And really strong growth in the second part of the year, and that was you know even more incredible because of there was strong growth at the end of 2017. You know, for the the latest uh, data out, you know, U.S. production was up, I believe, around more than 1.8 million barrels per day. Uh, those were the EIA um, October numbers um, that just came out here recently, and so certainly strong growth into the end of the year definitely upended prices came at the same time that we're seeing these these trade um, issues trade worries uh, sort of global macroeconomic issues raise their head um, and you know just a lot of a lot of financial uncertainty so what do you think are some of the assumptions kind of from a corporate perspective um, heading into 2019 um, that you know with 2018 as kind of a, a model of maybe how things were uh, missed um what are some of the assumptions heading into 19 what are companies messaging to investors and what are the investors expecting um you know i think companies are um really trying to to show investors that they are willing to toe the line on capital discipline they're saying you know whether that puts their spending slightly up or slightly down 
really depends on oil prices. And, you know, in some ways this kind of uh, absolves them of having to make real statements about where they see their spending coming in. They just say, oh, well, we're going to align it with cash flow. Um, but, you know, I think that that's, that's true. What we've seen from, from equity investors is that they want companies to spend within cash flow. They want them to return uh, capital to shareholders through dividends, through debt reduction, and through share buybacks. And you know the one of the 34 largest companies, uh, largest oil companies, um, traded in the U.S. Actually, I think maybe that's X Total, but at any rate, you've seen basically one of them that had a positive uh, share price response in 2018, and that was Conoco. And they've certainly taken that message of capital discipline, limiting spending, and moderate production growth. Um, you know, to, I'll say to an extreme, but really just to, to its logical conclusion. Um, and, and they've been rewarded by investors. And so companies are, are talking about this, but yet at the same point, I think it's important to remember um, spending within cash flow means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, cash flow means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Are we talking about operating cash flows, in which case we could see uh, activity more closely aligned with actual oil prices, or at least with forward strip? Or are we talking about sort of all-in cash flow, and that could include, you know, uh, asset sales or monetizing certain hedges if, if they're out there? Um, and so how we think about cash flow and, and sort of what's the fudge factor there? I mean, nobody's going to spend the penny within cash flow, um, you know, necessarily. Are investors going to be willing to put up with a 10% outspend if there's no near-term addition of debt? You know, if you're able to, to say... Um, pull that off, you know, within your, your, uh, revolver, uh, within your revolving credit facility or something like that. So I think, you know, there's going to be companies that test kind of both sides of that, but broadly the messaging is that, you know, we're going to spend within cash flow because that's what investors are asking for. Um, so that implies, um, obviously, uh, adherence to this, this message of capital discipline that, um, investors love to hear. Um, so let's just say that is what happens. Companies spend within cash flow, um, and they they demonstrate a, a good amount of uh, capital discipline, like Conoco did in 2018. Sure. Uh, what does that mean, or what are the implications then for production growth, um, particularly in the Permian Basin, but elsewhere as well? Well, and so this is. I mean, I think you know it's kind of this is sort of a big wild card in that a lot of people um, are assuming that this potentially you know, biases U.S. production growth uh, perhaps downward, you know, certainly maybe down from the, the strong production growth that we've seen in 2018. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily the way that companies are looking at it themselves. I mean, if you just take Conoco as an example, you know, they're, they're posting decent production growth. Uh, I don't have it off the top of my head, but, you know, I would say it's probably upwards of 5 to 8%, maybe more, um, while at the same time cranking up their dividend and their buyback and, and reducing debt. Um, and so I think a lot of companies are still looking at production growth. You know, there was a, I think there's a really interesting uh, survey out from the Dallas branch of the U.S. Federal Reserve Something like when, when, when company executives, more than 100 company executives, were asked what their number one goal was for, for the coming year, 2019, um, something like 49% maybe, um, 46% said production growth. And that was more than three times the next uh, most important thing, which was around 13% said buying assets. Um, and then it was maybe 10% said keeping production flat. 
And so you now have the vast majority of, of company executives that really aren't necessarily focused on debt reduction or spending within cash flow. And you know, you could say that in a lot of ways, that's a disconnect between equity and equity markets, equity investors, and and what executives want and see. Um, on the other hand, I think executives think they can do both, um, and I think that's going to be where it gets interesting. So, if they are successful and they do uh, uh, grow production, can they also at the same time stick to their capital discipline promises? I mean, I th- I think they can, but. A- Again, it just sort of comes down to how are you defining things, you know. Uh, one of the things that I think has been really interesting to see has been the rash of, um, of water handling sales, the, these assets that companies built up to handle uh, produced in fresh water in the Permian Basin. Um, we've seen a significant number of companies monetize those. Um, there are a lot of uh, midstream companies that are being set up sort of with a water handling specialty. Concho was the latest one. I think they pulled in a little more than $330 million, uh, for their water handling assets. These are things that companies built up to help them facilitate the, uh, the drilling and development of the properties that they owned in the Permian, but they aren't necessarily things that they want to own. Um, and so I think looking at assets like that, you know, there's also a number of companies out there thinking, um, you know, a Hess or um, Shell or BP that have midstream MLPs where they would be able to uh, monetize some of their midstream assets. They have a, a ready and logical buyer there um, and use that money to essentially show cash flow neutrality uh, at the same point that, that their spending may not be aligned with operating cash flows. And so I think that's one way. You know, that's certainly one asset. There are others out there. Um, you know, even looking at a company like, say, a Chevron, they have, they've identified something like 200,000 acres in the Permian Basin, 150,000 to 200,000 acres, that they would be willing to part with. Uh, there are other companies out there that have fringe Permian acreage, and I say fringe in, in the sense that it might not be core to their operations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad, bad rock underneath there. And so, you know, there's a potential that if there are companies out there looking for acquisitions, um, you know, there are ways to sort of make yourself look a bit more cash flow neutral than than you might think, even at a low oil price. Yeah. Uh, and so let's let's just assume um, if we if we do get into a higher oil price environment, let's say fifty five, sixty dollars a barrel. Uh, do you think then we might start seeing uh, companies maybe start locking in more hedges that would then allow them to kind of profitably produce throughout the year, even if commodity prices do stay volatile? Certainly. I mean, I think if you see uh, oil prices spike, whether that's um, for a geopolitical reason or, you know, I think Iran uh, waivers to the Iran sanctions uh, expire, I believe it's in May. Um you know, if the Trump administration decides to to ratchet down those sanctions on Iran and and pull additional oil off the market, um, you know, we could see futures prices go up. And if companies are able to lock that in, I think with the focus on cash flow neutrality, they're going to do that, and and it will make a lot of sense. And at that point, then you see a bit of a, a decoupling of of activity from oil prices in the second half of the year assuming that they're able to lock those in. I mean, assuming they're not, though, and, and they're under hedge, um, you know, maybe maybe companies are a bit more aligned with oil price. But you know, I, th- I think those are things that we really need to monitor sort of month to month. Um, I think it's it would be dangerous to make many assumptions about 2019 um, now because mm. I think it is it does have the potential to be um, volatile and to have really different dynamics set up in the beginning, middle, and end of the year. 
Okay, and uh, just to wrap up, I'm uh, going to pivot a little bit, um, but I thought we might talk briefly about this uh, Wall Street Journal article that made some pretty heavy rounds um, recently about how thousands of shale wells have um, kind of underperformed proje- projections uh, that some companies had provided to investors. Basically, the journal looked at um, some of the type curves, <clears throat> some of the type curves from investor presentations and argued that the realized results don't really line up with what the companies were assuming. Um, what did you think of this report? You know, it's uh, EURs are, and I think the journal, um, first off, I just, you know, I just want to give a shout out to the reporters that did that work. I think it was a Herculean undertaking. Um, and and I think that there's, there's a lot of good work done there. Um, and they're right to point out that these things don't always line up you know the EUR that that's on that slide whatever slide five in, the, in everybody's investor deck uh, that's got a Permian position um, is not always representative of every well in in their uh, portfolio and oftentimes you know I guess what what the journal found was that um, that these wells were underperforming type curve uh, it's tough because quite honestly i feel like this maybe wasn't a big surprise to a lot of people that are are doing energy kind of day in day out um a lot of people take those eurs with you know i'll say a grain of salt i mean obviously you know people do pay attention to them but i don't think they're taken really as as necessarily as gospel um and that those type of calculations don't really factor into into reserve calculations uh you know it's it's something that's put out there, I think, um, for marketing, and uh, and I think a lot of people sort of acknowledge that, and it's really tough too because EURs and you know there's not a shale well out there that's followed it's that that's followed you know to its logical conclusion kind of. Um, one of the things that was pointed out is you know the the Wall Street Journal analysis was based on um, some estimates that use uh, an assumed seven percent kind of terminal decline. And about a, I forget whether it's 20 or a 30 year life cycle. Um, you know, Pioneer Natural Resources was using a 5% terminal decline, I think, and a, a 50 year life cycle. Um, you know, we don't have a modern Permian well that's been online for, for 20 years, much less 50 years. Uh, and, and so it was really kind of pitting um, one estimate against another estimate. And I'm not sure that, um, I guess I just didn't see as much of a smoking gun there. Uh, I mean, I think that. You know whether uh, an an analyst or a consultancy thinks it's a seven percent or a five percent. I'm I'm not sure we really have enough information to know how a well with a fourth, fifth, sixth generation frac in the Permian that's been online for 18 months is going to be declining. Um, you know, in 2049. Um, and so I just I maybe didn't see as much of an impact there. Mm. All right. Well, I think that does it for us this time. Um, Thank you for listening to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. If you want to see more of our analysis or subscribe to any of our services, please check out www.energyintel.com. See you all next time.